1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, talking about how God's love is not like the love of this world. There's a lot that passes for love in the world. There's a lot called love. Um, but God's love is unique to them all. It's divine. It's not like man's love. And those who would say all religions are the same or they would lump Jesus with Muhammad or Buddha, um, they will say, well, love is love. You know, it's all the same. But really, Christianity and Buddhism, they are not the same. They are very different. Jesus and Muhammad, not the same. Very different. Uh, and so the Bible says that there's a big difference, a total difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. God's wisdom comes from above. Man's wisdom comes from our limited resources. And there, in the same way, there's a difference, a profound difference between God's love and man's love. The ability of us to generate love, the, our motivation for love, our expression of love, the endurance of our love are all different. So God, his is, is perfect, infinite, complete, whereas our love, there's an end to it, and there's a limitation to it, and usually it has self in focus somewhere. So man's love, it's emotional, sexual, temporary. God's is practical, sacrificial, enduring, quite different. You think about the love that originates in you, it's very different than the love that's shown us by God. It's like if you took a single drop of God's love, comparing to every amount of love we could muster of all humanity, uh, God's would be 100% stronger and more pure than if you put all the love of men together and you have just one drop of God's, his would be that much more pure, that much more strong. So we have to we have to get this. We have to understand that God's love is awesome. It's amazing. It's gracious. It's far beyond a feeling or a thought. It's been demonstrated to us, and we can rejoice in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love that you've shown us. Help us to understand practically what that means, that it's, it's not some ambiguous term that could mean anything, but you showed your love in a very clear way through Jesus dying for our sins while we were sinners. While we were apart from you and had nothing to do with you, you reached out to us. You initiated that before the foundations of the earth, before we were formed in the wombs of our mothers. You have loved us with an everlasting love. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our eyes to receive that love and that through us your love might be given to others. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I was reading uh, the, uh, chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. And I'm really struck by, uh, really, it's, I, I suppose, romantic love in a sense, where you have Naomi desiring the best for her daughter-in-law, who's been a widow. And she says, shouldn't I desire good for you? Hey, this is what you need to do. You know, take a, take a bath, anoint yourself, put on nice clothes. And when Boaz, he's a near relative and a good man, when he is laying down in the threshing floor, you know, sneak in there and don't make yourself known to him, but uncover his feet and just lay there. He'll let you know what to do. And Ruth's like, okay, whatever you say, I'm going to do. So she does. She marks a place where he lays at the end of the big uh, pile of grain, uncovers his feet, and about at midnight, Boaz like wakes up and he's like, whoa, there's somebody here. Who is that? You know, like, who is at my feet? And she says, spread your skirt over your handmaid because you're a, a near relative. So basically she's saying, I would love to be your wife. And that's like, whoa, that she would go through all this trouble and planning and approach him and initiate that. He was blown away. He's like, blessed, you know, may you be blessed because um, that you've done this. You didn't look for the young guys, but everyone knows you're a virtuous woman and you came to me. So he's blown away by that. And he just says, you know, whatever it takes, I'm going to make sure that this happens. If the other kinsman doesn't take you, then I will. And it struck me that in both Ruth's initiation to desire marriage, uh, and you see between Naomi and the obedience of Ruth, you see God's love for us in sending his son. Um, 
it, it speaks of that desire to be joined with us forever in fellowship. And then you see the response of Boaz as a kinsman. And again, we see Christ. Just that picture that he, he wants to be with us. He's going to do his part. And so on both sides, we see the love of God displayed in, in human ways, but that's still a shadow of the love we see through Christ himself. So that's just something that's been uh, bouncing around in my head this morning. And, and we can think that God's love is a lot like my love. His motivation for loving is like my motivation for loving. But I have to realize that his love is so beyond what comes naturally for me and what comes naturally for you. And we need to ask ourselves, is God's love, his love, demonstrated in my life? The love that finds its origin within you does not measure up to that love. And if we think God loves us in the way that we love others naturally, we won't see the true picture of how much he loves us. We won't appreciate it for what it is. Just like uh, the creator is infinitely greater than his creation, God's love and man's love, their universe is apart. They're so different from one another. Uh, But let's start in 1 John 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And as we've read through this book, we've seen that God's love is more than words or feelings, um, but it's shown in deed and truth. Real love has evidence. The Greek word for God's love in the New Testament is agapeo, which is an active love, a sacrificial love. And in English, the word Love can be a noun or a verb, but in the Greek, it's always God's love is always agapeo, which is a verb. It's always an action. You guys learned that in school, right? You have your being verbs and your helping verbs or whatever you call them, and then the action, like a verb is an action, and God's love is always an action. He always takes action for the good of others without taking any thought for himself, what he's going to get out of it, what benefits could come from it. It has no selfish motivation at all. It's simply out of his goodness, for the good of others. The other Greek word we find in the New Testament translated for love is phileo, which is brotherly affection or friendship. It's kind of the difference when you're in junior high, like the really big difference between liking someone and loving someone, right? Oh, I just like him. Like, I don't, you know, we're not in love or anything. Like, you make a distinction, and that's, for me, it it helps to tell the difference between agapeo and phileo where you have a friendship, you know, like a, but it's limited to friendship. <laughs> and then you have love, which is active, which is like, I want to be with you forever. Uh, there's other Greek words for love that are not in the Bible. Eros, for instance, that's sexual or romantic love, does not appear in Scripture. Um, then there's storge, storge, which is unconditional love. It's between a parent and a child or among family. There are a couple of instances of Astorgos, which is used in the negative. So it's saying that people lack familial love. They're not loving each other as a family should. So the negative is used, but that word is never seen in the positive in the New Testament. But God's word, always agapeo. It's always that active, sacrificial love. And so John says, we are to agapeo one another because love is of God. Because we know God and God lives in us, therefore we are Uh, enabled to love others the way God loves us. Does that make sense? And what is the reason we are given to love one another? Because we are loved by God. That's why. Has nothing to do with the object of the love. It's simply because I have been loved by God, therefore I ought to love others the way he's loved me. Think of all the reasons you can love something. Right? You love someone because they're family. You're supposed to love them. Right? Um, we, we love people because we like them, because we enjoy being around them. We love what's attractive to us. We love an activity because it's a source of enjoyment. We love because we're able to give and receive something. There's a lot of things to love in the world. There's a lot of things we do love in the world but we're all incapable of loving as God loves. 
He loved us when we were unlovable. We were aliens of the commonwealth. We were actually opposed to God. We didn't even have knowledge of him, and he, he still loved us. So it's a gracious love. It's a generous love. It says here, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, there's a lot of aspects to God, but love is an essential part of his character that governs all of his choices. It's really who he is, that it impacts all other parts of his being. Like, he's a judge, right? But he loves. He's a loving judge. He's a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. But he loves the sheep. He's not just a shepherd who's in it for uh, wool that he could receive or because there's some friendship he has with his flock. No, it's because we see him being a good shepherd because he's a loving shepherd. So love undergirds all that he does. It's part of the substance of who he is. The world has made love, especially sexual love, a god. Literally, like the Romans worshipped Eros, who was the god of love. Uh, We know him as Cupid, the one with the arrow. He wasn't always the fat little chubby, uh, I don't know what you'd call him. Anyway, he he shoots his arrow, and if it hits you, you're going to fall in love with the first thing you see, even if it's a donkey, you know. And he's married to Psyche, which is the goddess of soul. And interestingly, they had a child named Hedon, or pleasure. So when love is united with the soul, they have pleasure. And we live in a very hedonistic world, don't we? One that is in pursuit of fun and pleasure. That is what a lot of people are living for. Whatever makes you happy, if it's drink, drugs, parties sex, self-indulgence, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good, that is God. That is something to worship and pursue. That's something to bow down before. Today, people say that love is love, but the Bible tells us that God's lo- God is love. So there's a huge difference, right? You can't just lump all loves together. God is love. That is a dis- and his kind of love is very specific. It's that agapeo love. So when Christians talk about love, we're actually talking a language that people don't get. They don't understand it because they haven't experienced it. We, as children of God, have the Holy Spirit within us. Therefore, we have known God's love, and we're growing in it, and we're capable of being able to love as he loves. So the world wants to make all love equal, wants to lump it all together, But God's love is not of this world, and it's important we get that because it's been expressed to us specifically through Jesus, demonstrated through his sacrificial death for us. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God has manifested or revealed his love in sending his son. Jesus has demonstrated his love, God's love for us, by dying for our sins. To give us eternal life. He died so we could live. So love has always been a part of God's character, but in sending Jesus, he expressed his love in a profound way not seen before. For all to see. Verse 9, it describes Jesus as God's only begotten son. And this begotten, the word used there, means only born one. So he has a unique relation to the father. Guzik wrote, this special term means Jesus has a sonship that is unique only. And begotten indicates that Jesus and the father are of the same substance, the same essential being. So you may have someone who begets someone else in a human sense, but saying that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father is something very unique and singular, that he is, in essence, the same as the Father, but in human flesh. So God initiated his love for us in sending his Son to be the propitiation, and that means the payment that that justice requires. We talked about it before that Jesus is our expiator 
He's the one who makes atonement for the wrongs we've done, and he makes amends between us and God because we've offended him because of sin. We deserve judgment, and he's made amends there. He's paid the fine, and he's also made us good again as far as our connection with God is now complete through him. So my love for God is not the standard of love to be looked at, but God's love for me. That is the standard, right? God sets the standard of love. He doesn't point to martyrs who died for Jesus. Like, see those guys? See how they sacrificed? You get, you should sacrifice. He just points to God's love and says, look, look how God's loved you. God loves you. You've all heard of crimes that you know are horrible. They just make your stomach turn, right? And, and you think of someone who has done these heinous crimes. You say, death is too good for them. They should suffer for what they've done. There's something in us that says justice is not served if they just spend 10 years in prison. What they've done is horrible and wrong. Now, beloved, we are worse in the eyes of a holy God because me and my flesh, I'm not holy. My justice is not pure. I give myself a free pass. I give friends a, a free pass. But God is holy. He is altogether righteous. And before him, when you think of a, a sin, telling a lie, stealing something, that it, my sense of justice is muted in comparison to his justice, where the punishment, the just punishment for a single sin is not just the death of the body or sickness during life, but the death of the soul eternally in hell, that you would be put into hell, a place of eternal flame, in outer darkness where worms are gnawing through your flesh and you do not die and you stay tormented forever, that is the just punishment for a sin. So you go, whoa, that is hardcore. That is brutal. Well, we don't really get how bad sin is before a holy God, but that's how bad it is. It's awful. So the death of the body was too good for us. We deserve agony forever in hell. And so the fact that God would love me, that he would love you, that he would set his affection upon you, that he would send his only begotten son to die in your place so that we could be redeemed and live with him forever, that is a love that this world cannot know apart from God. 1 John 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Like, look at this. It's like he's holding it up and saying, look at this love. See how God's loved you. Look at the manner of God's love. How sacrificial it is. How giving, how generous and gracious. And then verse 11 that we've just read, it makes it personal. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God's love is the basis for me loving someone else because he's loved me and I don't deserve to be loved, but I rejoice to be loved. It feels amazing. It is amazing to know you are loved. Wouldn't you say so? To know that someone loves you. So it's not if someone deserves it. It's not someone is related to you or not by blood. God's love, it transcends all those things. If we love out of guilt, we don't love from a pure heart. If we love to get something returned, this is not God's love. The question is that we need to answer, has God loved you? And if you say, yes, he has loved me, then the corollary is, we ought to love others. It's quite simple, really but it's very impossible for me to love as God loves through trying to do it in my own strength, by trying to motivate myself through the flesh. If we love others, so you can say, okay, yes, God loves me and I love others. Well, if you love others, there will be evidence of this love. There will be some tangible, concrete thing that we can say, well, see, here's evidence of it. Um, Ancient civilizations, they always leave evidence behind. Extinct people groups, they have left behind dwellings and, and tools, weapons, records, 
idols, coins. So you know that this people group existed, and you can learn a little bit about their culture. So man-made articles, they provide evidence that these people really did live in the world. And if we're truly born again, God's love will be evident in our lives by our decisions, the things that we choose to do. Just like fire is hot, ice is cold, Christians are loving because God lives in them. There will be evidence of this. Now, this love is not going to look as the world demands it should. The world says, if you love me, well, then do this. Prove your love to me. And maybe even telling you to do something that is not godly as a proof of your love. God's love, it will always be in agreement with God. So can you agree with God's word that we ought to love others, right? We ought to love based upon what he has said. Let's keep going. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. When John says no one has seen God at any time, he's speaking of the unapproachable Father. Moses asked to see God's glory, and he says, no man can see me and live. Like you'll be consumed like like a moth in flame. You you cannot look upon me. Uh, Paul describes God in 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Bible describes God as a spirit. It says God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. Also, the Holy Spirit. We see evidence in the lives of people, just like we see movement of the wind can move the trees. So evidence of his power can be seen. But when he says no one has seen God at any time, he's specifically speaking of the Father, whom no one has seen. But Jesus was sent as a revelation of the Father, because he said, Philip... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So being the only begotten Son of God, he is the same essential being as God. Right? So you have God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God expressed in three different persons. Jesus Christ is a revelation of God this world had never seen before. A personal, it wasn't with, it's like a personal revelation. It wasn't with fire and earthquakes and lightning and the way that he manifested himself on Sinai, right? It's like the ground is shaking. People are like, whoa, God is just so incredibly awesome. Moses, you talk to God. It wasn't conducive. So God revealing himself in power was not conducive to relationship. And so he sent Jesus to show his love in a practical way that we can understand. When Jesus took the nails and he he allowed himself to be scourged and his beard to be pulled out and to be nailed to a cross, and he, he loved and was kind to his disciples all along the way. So we say, that is love. That's love I've never seen before. That God would be clothed in human flesh for a lifetime. That he would chose, choose to humble himself and face death, even the death of the cross. It says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So he's declared the Father, the love of the Father. Father loved us, sent his Son. Jesus has loved us in dying for our sins. Verse 12, it says that God's love is perfected in us, completed in us. He has offered his love, and in responding to his love, we are now made perfect perfect in his love. So love, it must be received to really be love, right? Um, there has to be a consciousness on the other end, or else you can't have two beings that are in love with one another. And it's hard for us to think of it outside of the romantic context, because that's we're human. We tend to go that way. So our, our, our connection with God is not a romantic one, but that agapeo, that active love because of the Spirit of God within us. In Romans 5.5, it says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, here's a question. 
for you guys. Obedience to parents, is that voluntary or automatic by virtue of being a child of a parent? Hmm. What do you think? No, 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 no. So by virtue of being a son of my parents, it does not mean that I am automatically obedient to my parents, right? No, it's voluntary. Is obedience to government voluntary or the automatic result of by virtue of being a citizen of that country? Right? There's a lot of citizens who are not obedient to the laws of the land, right? So we can say, okay, that's voluntary. It's not automatic. So... In both cases, obedience is a conscious act of the will. Knowledge of the rules, of course, that helps us to do the right thing. It doesn't mean we always will do the right thing, right? You can know the right thing to do. You know, I need to be home by 10. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be home by 10. There could be a crash on the road. You could just forget, stay out too late. But if you're going to be obedient, it's a conscious act of the will. It just not, doesn't automatically happen. Like I just, oh, I just opened my eyes and I'm here at home. It just happened. Of course not. Let's not be ridiculous. So, is loving others voluntary or automatic by virtue of the Spirit of God living within me? Guess what? It's not automatic. It's voluntary. We have to choose to agree with God and to do what He says, not what I feel like doing. The desire and ability to obey God and loving others is a conscious choice. We are enabled by God to do this, but we have to agree to do it. Paul called out the Corinthian church because they were, he says, I can only talk to you as carnal people because that's how you're loving. You're loving people in a carnal way, not in a godly way. If you were loving people in a godly way, you'd be dealing with the sin that's going on in the church. So I can only speak to you as carnal people, like normal people. I can't even talk to you in a way Uh, that's bringing spiritual stuff into the picture yet because you're not getting it. You're not walking in love. Seeing the example of Jesus, we can see what it looks like to love people. And we are given the capacity to love as he does through his spirit. We still need to decide if I'm going to die to myself and love someone or if I'm going to be embittered and withhold his love from others. As God's love impacts all he is and all he does, his love should influence the way we live. And it's not easy, is it? Praise the Lord, uh, hard things can be done. Impossible things he can do. Verse 14, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. It's one thing to confess with your mouth, but another thing when your words and your life are in agreement with each other. And that's the meaning of confess here. Um, the word is homologeo, which is to speak the same to agree. So our belief, it's it's revealed in the way that we live. For instance, let's say... There's a, a very a pot you believe to be hot on the stove. Now, if you really think that pot is hot and those handles, being metal, will conduct the heat, what are you going to put on your hands before you lift it up? You're going to put some oven mitts on, right? You're going to protect your hands, grab a towel, something. You're not just going to barehand it and pick up this heavy pot that's super hot if you think it's hot. If you believe it's hot, you will protect yourself, right? That just makes sense. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of honor, then you will hear his words and obey them. You'll actually be looking to God to give you direction in life rather than just going our own way. Verse 16, it says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And this is a critical point. Can you say you have known and believed the love that God has for you. I'm not asking you if you feel loved or not. Do you believe that God loves you enough to send his son to die for your sins so you can be together forever? And so his spirit can live within your life, dwell within you, so you can know his love and you can know him.
It's a funny thing how easily people believe um, outlandish things. They may read online or hear in a conversation, but they struggle to believe that God loves them. Right? Have you guys ever been there? You, you struggle to believe that God really loves you. How can, how can we say we, we believe in the miraculous or the supernatural, but stumble over the fact that God's gracious toward me, that God loves me? It's not an impossible thing for God to do. It shows that we're not gracious, we're not generous, not in our flesh. You believe that every time you breathe in air, the oxygen is uh, used by your body, absorbed through your lungs and carried around through your blood, this complex thing's going on, and when I breathe out, it's carbon dioxide, right? You, you believe that because of scientific evidence, medical evidence. Have you chosen to breathe in the love of God that he has for you? Do you believe it? Are you convinced that you are loved by God? Because if you're convinced of that, it's going to impact every area of your life. It will give you strength and endurance to love like God loves. Just like oxygen, I breathe it in and it allows my body to keep moving and to heal itself and to reproduce different cells and regenerate. We have to breathe in that love. And we've got to hold on to it. Not just because things are tough, so I may not be loved by God. Do you believe he loves you? And if you, since we believe God's love for us, it compels us to love others. And in loving others, God's love is manifested to the world. And that's why he's saying it's perfected in us. So his love has found a place in our lives. It's now coming through our lives. And people are being touched by God's love. And there's evidence of God in you because of love. Pretty awesome. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Of course, there's more to following Jesus than love, but at the same time, nothing can be divorced from God's love. Paul says we can speak with the tongues of angels, we can uh, have faith that moves mountains, we can give our bodies to be burned, but without love, it profits me nothing. It counts for nothing. So truth, it's essential, it's critical that we speak truth. But if we don't have love motivating us to speak the truth, truth is missing a key component. So it's really not true anymore because the love's not in it. So we have to have love undergirding, empowering, and it's God who does that. The emphasis here at our fellowship is to be loving God to love people and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that we would know and believe the love that God has for us. We would all receive that. We'd realize more and more. And if you think you know God's love now, realize it's an infinite thing. It's almost like knowing God. You, you cannot know all of his love in one moment. It's something that we grow in and we recognize more and more. Wow, God is really loving. And that's good when you come to that conclusion. But as you continue through and you see yourself and the love that originates in you and and just our wretchedness, my wretchedness, I realize God's love is so much greater than I ever imagined. Love is not a flavor or a presentation, but it's the chief ingredient. It's the substance of our lives. It's not just, I'm just going to act loving. It's not a show. It's the substance of the thing. I love that God's love can be revealed in everything you say and do. In something so simple as listening to someone, giving them a ride, valuing the presence of another person, cooking a meal. You can show God's love in all those things. In the way you say something, in the way you don't say something that you could say. It's like they fell right into the trap and you could just blast them. But instead... You're loving towards them, and you don't keep track of wrongs. You don't throw their mistakes in their face. And you, the reason why you're not doing it is not just for their sake, but for God's sake, to honor him. And the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, he is near to us. He will, he will tell us how to be loving in every 
situation, not just act loving. Isn't there a difference? Hmm. Many times I have acted loving. I know I am not loving, but by his grace, he is love. And he enables me to love in a way, in ways that I cannot, I can't bring myself to love, but he does it. Praise him for that. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. As believers, followers of Jesus, we have assurance of salvation. We have assurance of eternal life through the gospel. We do not fear death because Jesus has conquered death for us. You see the boldness of the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and went to the Father? They were without fear of even the judgment of men, not to mention the judgment of God. For if we as children of God walk in a loving manner, we're actually always going to do what pleases God. Isn't that cool? If you could turn in your Bibles to Romans 13, verses 8 through 12, we read that love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, to complete it, to finish it. You might have paid off your car debt, your student loans. You may have your mortgage free and clear. But you know that you owe somebody, you owe everybody something, and that's to love them. You owe them. It's like, whoa. Mm. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. God's love is fulfilled in boldness facing judgment. When you think about being judged for your life on earth, are you filled with dread? Are you, are you a little concerned? that there will be some um, sins that God has remembered or things that you have failed that will be brought up on that day? Well, we know that God has put our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And we can have boldness and confidence even facing the judgment of God when we walk in his love because we'll be doing exactly what he wants us to do. John says, we love him because he first loved us. Hopefully it's been uh, hammered home that we, we cannot love as God loves. It's not, we don't have the capacity to understand or to put into practice love of that kind. Our love for God finds its basis in his love. I like what Matthew Poole wrote in his commentary. He says, His is the fountain love, ours but the stream. His love, the inducement, the pattern, and the effective cause of ours. When a baby's born, fresh from the womb, squalling and, you know, just having a, having a hard time sleeping and can't even hold its head up, can't focus on anything, is that baby capable of loving anyone? Well, that baby doesn't have the capacity to love yet because it's not able to even convey that love. It'll be, its ability to even perceive the world around it is developing, right? Like I can love the baby, but the baby really can't love me because there's really no consciousness yet. It's a conscious person, but still in a very, uh, I guess a beginning stage. The baby may have feelings of love, of storge, before he or she is able to actually verbalize them. So I think a child can love from a young age. And a child may be able to say, I love you, and just say it because it's what you say, not because they really know what it means. 
But eventually, children do display love, right? Through cuddles or drawing a picture, and you're in the picture. And that's big. Someone draws a picture, and you're in it. And it doesn't look anything like you, but this is you, right? And you're like, great, am I really that fat? Okay. Um, you know, buying a present for you. The, the, the thing that you receive may not be much to brag about, but hey, they were thinking of you. This is a way they can show love. By wanting to be with you, by wanting to play catch when you're just dead tired, they want to be with you. So they're able to express love in a lot of ways. Now see, God demonstrated his love for us before we were born. He demonstrated his love for us in creating us at all, by knitting us together in the womb, and he's loved us when we were not conscious of him. In fact, we grew up to be, I guess, beyond bratty teenagers and young people who rebelled against him completely, hated him, swore against him, wished he was dead, and he kept loving us, he kept pursuing us, and when we were born again, born again, now we have a capacity to love in a new way, in his way, and it takes time to develop. We have to choose if we're going to allow that to develop within us. So love is a fruit of the Spirit. We're to consciously cultivate. We're not automatically loving because I have been born again. But God empowers and enables us to love as he does. Man, since we've tasted and seen that God is good, how awesome it is that his love can come through us to someone else. And they can receive that. And they can catch a glimpse of the love of God through you because you said that kind word, because you were there for them. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Earlier in this book, John affirmed that if we're abiding in God, we're not going to sin. God's not going to lead us astray. He's always going to lead us in the right way. And he says if we hate our brother, I think it was in chapter 3, if we hate our brother, there's murder in our hearts. That indicates that we're not abiding in God. And it says also, if we say we love our brother, but I've shut up my heart from him, and I don't meet basic needs, I don't care about how he's going at the moment, well, then how can I say I'm walking in God's love? So now, after all, saying all those things, he comes to this point, and he says, if you claim to love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. And that's uh, nothing to take away or to add to. I mean, it, there it is. I don't want to soften the blow. And when it says brother here, the context is a fellow believer. You could apply it to your uh, family relations. You could apply it to your spouse. You could apply it to your children or your parents, your people from school, even your enemies. You can apply it there as well because Jesus said to love your enemies. So if, we claim, if, if I'm claiming to love God, but I hate my brother, then I'm lying. I'm not walking in love towards the Lord at all. There's no evidence of love. There's actually the opposite. It's a sad thing when, when people avoid each other, when there's offense that can happen when there's avoidance and silence. And it's sad when, when husbands and wives don't love each other. And it's tragic when Christians are offended by each other and they, they just cast off fellowship. This is for us to take to heart. If we recognize that there's hatred in us towards others, we need to do what's right. We need to repent of that and live in the way that pleases God. That wayward son, that prodigal, he, he recognized when he came to himself that he had done the wrong thing and that he needed, his, he needed his dad. And we need to come to a place where we say, Lord, I can't love that person. I have been hating them and I confess that. But I want to love others like you love me. I want to love that person like you love me. Not just because I have to, but because I want to. Because I love you so much. Our choices can cultivate the love of God, or we can trample the seedlings with our feet. It's really your choice. And if we abide in hatred and darkness, it's, it's a horrible place to be. 
It's interesting how we can prioritize our lives. You think of life outside of uh, just life around the home, for instance. Some people put a big priority on yard work, others uh, on organization, others on cleaning that, those toilets and bathrooms. And uh, One person thinks little of dropping thousands on a holiday, but the same person thinks $4 is too expensive for a coffee. So you, you get these like priorities. They're just like, oh, that's interesting. Um, some people will research appliances and they'll haggle for the best price. Um, other people just say, I don't really care what it costs. I just need a new you know, fridge and just buy it online and ship it to my house and you install it and don't want to deal with it. Um, it. It makes sense that the big ticket items would have more scrutiny, right? When you're buying a house, you should do an inspection. If you're buying a new car, you want to make sure it's a good deal for the money. Now, Jesus, he tells a kingdom parable about a master who gave his servants talents. And he says, keep busy until I return. You know, occupy till I come. And they were, he doesn't tell them exactly how to do that, but he he gave it to them according to their ability that they would invest those things for gain. And to those servants who did invest his things wisely, it says in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In Luke 19, the same parable, he says, you've been faithful over my money, basically, because he gave him talents. Uh, now you have authority over cities. So he gave them something to, to invest. They invested it wisely. He gave them more authority because... Uh, as the principle says in Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. When you think of talents that God's given you, what comes to mind? When you think of resources that are at your disposal, quite often we think about money or physical things, something tangible. We, we focus on the big things maybe. Like, I need to be responsible over these big things, like child rearing and paying my taxes and, and showing up to work on time and, you know, advancements. God wants you to be faithful over a little thing, and that's to love people in just little ways. Not just when they've had a death in the family, but when it's feeling a bit inconvenient, when it's not really what you feel like doing, to love them in that time. Last time I checked, loving others was not considered a necessity in any workplace environment I have ever taken part of. Has that been on your evaluation? You know what, this guy, he's, he gets a 5 out of 10 in loving others. Because that's what we value at this company. No! That's not how you're evaluated at school, right? B plus in loving people. No, the world... It, love goes right over its head. We don't evaluate people based upon love in the workplace or in government. Love is not even there. But it's so important in the eyes of God. It's a little thing. It's something that escapes the world's notice, but it's, the, it's our chief um, supernatural resource. You think of talents. You think of resources. Love, God's love in you, is an amazing resource. And it's to... to to be the substance of everything that you are and everything that you do towards others. And if we are faithful in a little thing, God will entrust more to us. If we're not faithful to love in a little way, we can't be trusted with anything more. Choosing to love in little ways is huge because it shows that you know and believe the love that God has for you. Because there will be evidence. If you believe that God loves you, there will be evidence in your life. When people begin to budget money, they're often amazed how much they spend on little things that add up. You know, they stop buying those $4 coffees, and in a few months, they, they, have, they can afford a holiday that they've always wanted but never could afford. When we start loving in little ways, the difference is huge in our lives for witnessing, just our witness for God is so strengthened because there's a reality to it, right? Evidence. So the chapter concludes, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also.
So this is our challenge. This is our litmus test. Loving others is not an option. It's commanded from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we claim to love God, we must love our brother. You know, it's a sin not to love. It's a sin not to love others in the way that God's loved us. So when we believe that God's loved us in such a profound way, we are quickened, compelled, reminded to to love others in the way that he's called us to. This is agapeo love. Not that we love God or others, but that he first loved us. And because I love him, I want to love others. His love is our source, our example, our inspiration. And may his love be demonstrated through us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love that you've shown toward us, that it transcends our lives, everything. That you've given us the capacity to love in little ways that make a profound difference for eternity. And Lord, I pray that we would know and believe the love that you have for us and that we would walk in this love, that our whole lives would be, um, that would be the substance of our lives is your love and it would flavor and impact every area of our lives. God, we, we confess that we have not loved as we ought. We have not loved like you have loved us. We have uh, put demands on people to love them and we have, oh Lord, you know us. You know that we have, we have not done as we should, but thank you for putting our hearts to desire to do what is right and to love others. And I pray that you would help us to do this in those little ways to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow you, to love one another as you have loved us. And I pray, Lord, if there's those in this room who have not yet received your love, who have not been born again, Lord, I pray that your love would compel them to trust you and to seek you and to believe the gospel. That we could be like that baby that grows up into a young man and young woman who loves their parents, who loves other people, and who whose future is bright because of your love. Thank you, God. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask that you would knit our hearts together, that we'd be united in your love and that you would continue to guide and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.